Lots of people are talking about football this week, which reminds me of an experience I had six years ago. The Patriots were hosting the Carolina Panthers, and I was invited to the Panthers Hotel to lead a private church service on Saturday night, because they'd be busy on Sunday morning. This was the height of the Belichick-Brady era, so I loved watching football. But not enough to pay attention to the players on the other teams. But Cam Newton, the Panthers quarterback, was an exception. He was an extraordinary athlete on field and off field. He was just as mesmerizing for his charismatic personality and eye-catching outfits. I wondered if he might come to the service. He didn't. But the service went well, and everybody was super kind. At the end, the players, as they were filing out, you know, each one somehow larger than the last, several of them came up to ask questions, receive prayer, politely thank me for coming. But one of the assistant coaches or office personnel was intentionally hanging back, you know, chatting and laughing with the players as they exited. He was a young guy, no bigger than I was, so he looked like a kid uh, among these gargantuan men. It was getting late. But after everyone else was gone, he came up to thank me and ask me a little bit more about the sermon. He seemed eager for a, a deeper conversation, but I knew he was just there to handle me and ensure that the room was left in good order. You know, there's always someone like that assigned when a, an outside speaker comes. But I'd been invited to care for the players, and now they were gone. So I cut off our conversation politely so that both of us could be done with work for the day and get to bed. The next day, I turn on the game, hoping to see some of the guys that I'd met the previous night. But all of the talk during the pregame show was about that year's first-round draft pick, who'd become their new superstar. And while they were talking, up popped a photo of that little assistant coach I'd met the night before, who turned out to be the all-pro running back Christian McCaffrey, who's leading his current team to the Super Bowl next weekend. And I suddenly realized this guy wasn't there to handle me. He'd waited patiently until everyone had left, probably hoping to have a real conversation. But I misunderstood who he was and why he was there. So I basically blew him off, missing the opportunity to see God's power at work, bringing healing and hope. And I share that because there's a similar dynamic at play in the story that we read today. Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. Now, if you've been following along with our Sunday sermons and daily devotions going through Luke, then you know that Jesus has been making a splash. After a quiet start, Jesus has been healing people and teaching things that amazed them. We read in, in the last chapter of Luke that they were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us. Now, even Jairus, an important synagogue leader, is coming to him for help. By this time, everyone knew who Jesus was. An exciting new rabbi and miracle man. And they all wanted to see him, kind of like I was eager to meet Cam Newton. We know how crowds can mob a celebrity. And that's what was happening to Jesus. We read, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. But then something scandalous happened. A woman who'd been hemorrhaging blood for years snuck up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his robe. Outrageous, right? Well, actually, that probably doesn't seem all that outrageous to most of you. It's pretty common 
for fans to try touching celebrities as they pass. But imagine how different it would be if someone who'd been quarantined with a highly contagious disease, communicable by even the briefest touch, broke out of the hospital isolation chamber and then deliberately grabbed some famous politician or celebrity. Then we'd be outraged. We'd consider it a crime. That's how the people surrounding Jesus would have seen what this woman did. It was evil. Clearly, she had some kind of disease. She'd been sick for 12 years. And despite trying everything, it was incurable. A brief excursus, just because I think it's funny. Today, we're reading Luke's account. But Mark tells almost exactly the same story, but adds a detail that Luke decided to skip for some reason. Mark explains that she'd suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years, she'd spent everything she had to pay them. But it gotten no better. In fact, she'd gotten worse. But Luke, who was a doctor, mysteriously omits that part, simply saying she could find no cure. She might not have looked sick on the outside, but she was dying from the inside. Blood represented life in Jewish culture, which is why Jesus offered his blood in communion. We're receiving not just his ideas, but his very life inside us. But in this case, her life was being drained a bit more each day both because of what was happening inside her and because of what was happening to her as a result. The law declared her ceremonially unclean, like people with unexplained illnesses or oozing skin lesions, and detailed that unclean people weren't allowed near other folks. So whenever they left their homes, they had to walk down the street loudly announcing their uncleanliness so that others could steer clear. Why would God create such a stigmatizing system? Because all of God's law is designed to promote life and human flourishing. It's given for our good. And in the centuries before germ theory was developed, no one knew that social distancing was a thing. So entire civilizations were often wiped out by a single contagion. But the Old Testament laws around food preparation and disease control are one of the reasons the ancient Jews endured while most surrounding cultures went extinct. But although this rule was good for the community, it wasn't good for this woman. For 12 years, she had been quarantined. For 12 years, she'd been cut off from family, friends, from human interaction. For 12 years, the life inside her was slowly leaking away, leaving her empty, and exhausted. For 12 years, she'd been an outcast, alone. I mean, she tried everything already. She spent all her money and energy and hope on people whom she thought could help her, but had left her with nothing but illness. She doesn't even have a name in this story, probably because after 12 years, she's only known by her disease in that community, known only as someone to avoid. Well, at least she can go to God, right? No, she can't even do that. Because the Jews in that era believed that God lived in the temple and ceremonially unclean people like her weren't welcome in the temple. 
her uncleanliness might make everyone else sick. So unlike the synagogue leader in the beginning of this story, she couldn't fall at Jesus' feet or even ask for Jesus' help. She had to hide in the shadows where no one could see her, where, where no one would be polluted by her sickness. It's hard for modern people like us to relate to a woman like that. Or is it? My experience is that many people, including some of you, have been struggling silently for years. Like this woman, you may look fine on the outside, but inside, you're dying. Perhaps there's a sin that you can't seem to conquer, an eating disorder, uncontrolled spending, a sexual temptation, or an addiction. Or maybe it's an emotional wound left by a broken relationship, a broken family, toxic person, or traumatic experience. Unhealed attachment issues from your childhood, anxiety you just can't shake, crushing insecurity, a marriage that looks fine to outsiders, but is slowly draining the life out of you. Maybe it's paralyzing fear about our culture, your finances, your future, the possibility of war. Maybe like this woman, it's a physical condition, a lingering illness or chronic disease, a mental illness that resists all treatment. We may ask for help initially, but if the problem persists, we learn to keep quiet, keep our struggles secret, because other people won't understand or don't want to hear us talking about the same thing over and over again. Others are afraid that our spiritual sickness might infect other people. My bitterness, my doubt, my depression, my anger, temptations, if shared, might spread and, and take others down. Besides, you've tried everything already. You went to therapy, joined a Bible study, tried to pray it away. You read the self-help books, which seemed promising from the covers, but didn't end up helping very much. This photo is from a tragic eBay listing from someone who tried all these books and is finally giving up. I've met a lot of people who've just given up. They don't know what else to do. So like the woman in our story, they're slowly dying inside. And they feel cut off from God and other people. I've felt that before. In my 20s, I was desperate for approval and, and applause because despite my apparent successes, I was profoundly insecure. I always felt like I needed to prove myself because I, I didn't believe that I was loved or, or that I could be loved unless I did something to deserve it. But any of the things I did couldn't assure me that I would still be loved tomorrow unless I earned it again. When I became a Christian, I just added God to my list of people I needed to impress in order to be loved. And when I got married, our inability to love each other due to our own attachment wounds only confirmed that no one could love me. Michelle and I read all the books. We memorized all the verses. We, we went to the conferences. We, we went to therapy. We asked for help. But nothing helped very much. The solution 
to nearly every other problem I'd encountered in life was, try harder, do more. But despite doing everything that we could think of, nothing changed. We lived like that for years. We gave up believing that we could be healed. We went to church. I mean, I worked in a church. We, we did what we were supposed to do. We, we put on smiles when we were with others, but inside, we were slowly dying. We were suffering in secret, in part because we discovered that other people grew tired of hearing about any problem that couldn't be solved within a few weeks. I know that some of you are feeling just as hopeless and suffering in secret like that right now, just like the woman in this story. But when she heard Jesus would be passing by, she decided it was time to stop hiding. Because unlike the rest of the crowd, she knew who he was. Mark tells us that she'd heard about Jesus. She'd heard about his sermons and the way that he seemed to heal people miraculously. Lots of people, just like Jairus, came to Jesus to be cured of whatever ailed them. They all saw Jesus, the newest celebrity, but in that entire crowd, only she saw who he really was. So, Mark continues, she came up behind him and through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. She was taking a huge risk. I mean, if anybody noticed her, if anybody recognized her as that disgusting, bleeding lady, she'd not only be castigated, she might be killed for exposing all of them to her illness. But she knew something that others didn't. For years, I, I thought this story was very odd. I mean, why did she touch Jesus's robe when she could have just touched him? And maybe more importantly, why did it work? <laughs> what a weird story. But that's because I didn't know the whole story. She knew who he was. Mark said that she'd heard about Jesus. Maybe, maybe she'd heard about what the Heavenly Father said about him at his baptism. Or what he said when he was asked to read the scriptures in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim to the, that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. When the people heard it, they were outraged. Only the Messiah could say that. And they tried to kill him. But when she heard it, she was elated. Only the Messiah could say that. Only the Messiah. So coming up behind Jesus secretly so that no one would see her, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Hallelujah! I mean, you can imagine her joy, her, her bleeding stopped, but that joy quickly gave way to terror because suddenly Jesus stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. He was suddenly serious. Not just this woman, but something about his tone made everyone anxious. So they all denied touching him. 
Peter was a bit annoyed. Jesus, <laughs> this Jairus thing could be our big break. Let's not blow it by being late. And besides, I mean, everybody's touching you. We're, we're like a mobile mosh pit. Master, this whole crowd is pushing up against you. But Jesus wouldn't relent and said, someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. Can you imagine how this woman must have felt? She was hoping to be healed without anybody noticing her, but now everyone's staring right at her. First, her bleeding stopped, but I, I, now I'm guessing her heart must have stopped. Verse 47, when the woman realized that she couldn't stay hidden, she began to tremble. She fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she'd touched him and that she'd been immediately healed. Jesus replies warmly, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And the story is done. Does that strike you as strange? Like something's missing? I mean, all this drama, all this buildup, and, and then a quick cryptic platitude and it's over? Something is missing. I mean, it's here, but most of us miss it. The key that unlocks this strange passage is in that second to last sentence. The whole crowd heard her explain why she'd touched him, and not actually him, why she touched the fringe of his robe. And I want you to hear this because a lot of you here today will walk away after the service hearing about Jesus, singing to Jesus, giving to Jesus, but you won't find healing in Jesus. Like the crowds, you'll be in his presence, but not experience his power. They touched Jesus, but were not touched by Jesus in the same way that she was. What was the difference? She knew who Jesus was. Not just a great teacher or, or magician like the others claimed. Only she recognized he was Emmanuel, God with us. She wasn't allowed to go meet God in the temple, so God had come out of the temple to meet her. How do I know that she knew this? Because of a promise from God in the final chapter of the final book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Speaking of the Messiah, God promises to people living in the darkness created by fear, pain, evil, and injustice, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Get it? Uh, yeah, probably not. Because reading in English makes this hard to see. The Hebrew word for wing is kanaf. But that same word is used to describe the edges of Jewish prayer shawls known as talit. And they spread out like wings. Those prayer shawls were adorned with tassels along the fringe called tzitzit. And these tassels are much more than decoration. They're a specific combination of threads and knots that represent God's holy name revealed only to Israel and the 613 laws God gave when he chose Israel to be his people. Those tassels embodied the relationship of mutual love between God and Israel. And God promised through Malachi that when the Messiah arrived, there would be healing 
in his wings, aka the tassels of his prayer stall, which is to say healing through a personal experience of God's unrelenting love. By reaching out to touch those tassels, that woman was declaring that she knew who this was, that she believed in the God who keeps his promises even when it seems impossible and loves the least, the lost, and the lonely like her. She was sent into the shadows to die quietly in order to save the community from her disease. But here was the one who'd come to find people like her and then die to save the community from death itself. The crowds saw a superstar. Only she saw a savior. He didn't look like what they expected the Messiah to be. So only she recognized who he really was. Her heavenly father taking on human flesh in order to save her. And only he recognized who she really was. The crowds saw a nuisance, a nobody, not even a name. But to Jesus, she was family. She's not her disease. She's God's precious child, which is why Jesus looked right at her into her soul and replied tenderly, daughter, your faith has made you well. So why do I share all this today? Because a lot of us here are excited about Jesus. Perhaps you're here today to learn something from Jesus. And Jesus has a lot to teach us. His wisdom and insight can be transformational if we put it into practice. But Jesus has more than insight and good advice. Jesus has power. Supernatural power. When we need help, we often turn to trusted friends, parents, therapists, or best-selling books. If it's a physical problem, we rely on physicians and prescriptions. If it's a spiritual problem, we search the scriptures or consult a pastor. All of those can be useful. God's given us those resources in order to help us and heal us. And usually they work, but not always, or not all the way. Matthew 17 tells a story of a, a man who brought his sick son to Jesus' disciples, through whom God often healed. But in this case, they couldn't help. Only Jesus himself could do it. Michelle and I struggled silently for years. And all the marriage books and wise advice we tried to follow didn't help very much. Because what we were missing wasn't a new truth that we needed to learn or a new technique that we could master. We needed to experience God's grace and love. Believe that we're fully known. All of our sin, all of our failures, all of our needs and idiosyncrasies, and yet mysteriously, fully loved anyway. Not loved if we pretend to be perfect. Not loved when we behave well or do good deeds, but fully loved as the imperfect children of God that we are. We've been trying to extract that love from each other, but it was never enough. It could never be enough. We were draining life out of each other, but neither of us was being filled because we needed something that neither of us could provide. When that didn't work, 
we turn to other people, trying to extract that love that we longed for from them. But that only made us exhausting because we were too needy, draining the life out of those people too. Friends, what we needed was something that no parent, no therapist, no pastor or insight or achievement or applause could provide. All of those things have been so helpful to me in other circumstances. But we needed to experience the supernatural love of our Heavenly Father. For years, I thought that if I could perform and please people, they'd like me enough to fill my soul. But no amount of being liked can ever substitute for being loved. Like is always conditional. It's a response to whatever you last said or did. Love, true love, is unconditional. It's a response to who you are and persists despite whatever you last said or did. God likes us a lot of the time, but God loves us all of the time. And behaving to achieve God's like will never restore you to life inside. But that's what I kept reaching for for years. At the same time, I kept trying to learn something that would help me overcome my insecurity. And that's why I, I read so many books and I memorized so many verses. And I learned Hebrew and Greek and I attended all the conferences. I wasn't looking for knowledge. I was looking for love by accumulating knowledge. Because learning is easier for me. It feels safe. You know, I'm in control. I can decide whether I like it or not. Believe it or not. Put it into practice or not. But experiencing love, whether from people or God, requires giving up control. It requires risk and vulnerability. It requires an acknowledgement of our need. It requires accepting that I'm not always likable. So I depend on mercy from others who choose to love me anyway. I can't heal what's broken inside me any more than this woman could. So I can't tell you today how you can heal it either. All I can do is point you to Jesus and tell you to reach out to him because he can heal miraculously. I know because he did it for the woman in our story and even more because he's been doing it in me and in my wife. My so-called quiet times used to be something I checked off a list. You know, I'd behaved and I'd earned a bit of affection from God because I'd read a bit of the Bible and I'd prayed. I'd been a good boy, but I didn't experience any more of God's love that way. After years of futile effort to be liked and learn something that would heal me, I was introduced to a very different way of relating to God. It might have looked the same from the outside as what I did before, but was fundamentally different. I began opening the Bible and listening for God to speak to me. Because the Word of God is more than words on a page. It's alive and active. It, it sees me. It can speak to me through the Holy Spirit. And some days, it seemed like he did. Other times, not so much. I, I, I don't get to control that. All I get to do is reach out. He gets to decide how to respond. It's a real relationship. Instead of doing all the talking when I pray, I started spending the majority of my prayer time 
listening for whatever God might want to say to me. Sometimes there's a lot. Other times, not so much. But conversations are better when both people get to talk. And it turns out that God was there and had plenty to say, not simply to my intellect, but to my soul. What I encountered was not a new truth, but real love, real grace, real forgiveness. God had the miraculous power to do no, what no sermon or book could ever accomplish. And as God has been doing that in me and in my wife, it's changed us. It's changed our marriage and our parenting and the way we experience everything. It's still changing us because God is still healing us more and more. How exactly? I don't know. I just know that it's happening because I can feel it and see the many kinds of fruit it produces in my life and in the lives of those around me. It's uncomfortable to admit in our society that's you know, convinced it's so sophisticated and in control, but there's supernatural power in Jesus that can't be controlled or explained. It can only be experienced. The woman in our story experienced it, something that no doctor could do. Even Jesus' disciples couldn't have done. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. Yes, Jesus is a great teacher. Of course, the, the creator of our lives is the one who knows best how we should live them. But Jesus is more than that. Jesus does not want to be your advisor or your last resort. Jesus wants to be your savior and your Lord. But like the crowds pressing around Jesus in our story without realizing who he really was, what he could really do, I fear that a lot of you are here, so close to Jesus, that you could reach out and touch him today and be touched by him, but you won't. You don't. You don't know what's possible. Today, you can hear us read the scripture while you patiently wait for the sermon to start, or you can listen for the Holy Spirit to speak to you personally through the scriptures. Today, you can let me teach you, or you can ask God to touch you. Today, you can sing songs, or you can worship our Savior. Today, you can come forward to receive some soggy bread, or you can receive the very lifeblood of Jesus inside you. Today, you can make small talk with strangers, or you can entertain angels unaware. After service, you can come up front to have somebody pray for you. Or you can come up front to ask someone else to pray with you, believing that you can talk to Jesus yourself and that he wants to hear from you. This afternoon or this coming week, we can do things for God or we can do things with God. They will probably have much more power, but require much less pressure Today, some of you will experience a church service, but others of you will experience Jesus. That woman knew that she needed him and recognized him when no one else did. She pushed through the crowds and the commotion to touch Jesus. And today, I encourage you to push through the crowds and the commotion 
to touch Jesus. I pray that, like this woman, you will experience his power.